Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're talking about Hamilton. We're recording this on July 5th. Because yesterday was 4th of July. You, you should remember because of all the fireworks up through like 3am. Well, I mean, that's not really different from the last two months, but sure. Yeah. So the filmed version of Hamilton was released on Disney Plus on July 3rd. And we, like everyone else, have watched that, having previously listened to the soundtrack too many times. And we're going to talk about that this week. The release of this on Disney Plus has made it accessible to so many more people than have been able to see it before now. I think that it's a really great thing that this is being opened up to more people, and I hope that this is setting a trend for the future. I've seen some various discussions going on online about accessibility of Broadway. Not everyone has the ability to travel there and to pay, in Hamilton's case, sometimes hundreds of dollars for a ticket. I think sometimes thousands, honestly. It got crazy. There's an interestingly fine line to walk between artists need to make money and everyone should be able to enjoy the arts. So I think releasing it on a streaming service is probably the best thing you could do in that situation. We were watching an interview where they were talking about the fact that they had been spending several years serving Hamilton up to 1,300 people at a time and then across this weekend more people than had ever seen it before were going to be seeing it. I think that's good. I agree. Thanks, I appreciate your contributions. <laughs> I agree, even with touring and with it coming to other big cities, it still requires you to live in or have access to a big city, and again, hundreds of dollars or even thousands of dollars in disposable income with which to see a play. In the interview we were talking about in the extras on Disney+, Plus. in the context of that discussion, I think somebody was saying, when it blew up by word of mouth, you know, people were arranging to withdraw from their 401ks or like forgo vacations in order to go and see Hamilton. And I think that really highlights the whole like accessibility issue because it means that you have effectively made it inaccessible to a huge proportion of the population who doesn't even have those things to sacrifice for it. And for anyone but already extremely wealthy people, you're having them make like, a huge sacrifice in order to experience this cultural phenomenon. Right. I think that this is something that everyone should get to experience, particularly with the messaging that's within it. And, I mean, we're by no means poor, but when it came to the Fox Theatre, between how quickly the tickets sold and how much the tickets sold for, the Fox Theatre being the one in Atlanta that it came to nearest to us... There it... was no way we could afford that. No. So I hope that we can go forward and do more things like this. I don't think it will replace it. I think that if we were in New York and we wanted to go and see a play, we would still go and see a play on Broadway if we would find one that we could afford. But it would definitely be a thing that we had to like plan and save for in advance, and it wouldn't be like a thing that we could do lightly, you know? Well, I don't know. I mean, when we were in the West End a few years ago, we went and saw one or two things just sort of on the often that the tickets weren't crazy for that because we went at weird times of the day but <laughs> right but that's part of the accessibility of like we were there in a position where we could go in the middle of the day on a weekday because we were on vacation already and we could get day of tickets which is not always the case for something like hamilton which is like selling out for hundreds oh, of dollars awesome. no matter what the show was you know yeah which I think is why it's like... Yeah. I, I don't think that Broadway or West End would shut down forever because they weren't getting the revenue because people are just, oh, we just watched on TV. It's the same reason that live music is still a popular thing. Right, the Go experience. On. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've seen Hamilton on Disney Plus now. If someone were to hand me two tickets for Hamilton for a date after the coronavirus is no longer an issue, if that's the thing that happens, then I, I would go. I would go and see it live. Okay, with, with that note out of the way, which was a longer note than intended, 
we'll get into our spoiler warnings. We will be spoiling all of Hamilton, which is an interesting situation because mostly we'd be spoiling history, but or a not version, really. a version of it, history. It's not really. It's a fictionalized, uh, sensationalized, heavily revised. Yes. Eyes, eyes, eyes. I can't story. But we will be talking about the full stretch of the play and what happens in every part of it. So if you have not seen or heard it yet, go do that and then come back to us. If we have any other spoiler or content warnings, we will drop them in right here. Hello, we're very light on spoiler warnings this week. We briefly talk about the show The Great on Hulu. I don't think we actually talk about any plot points, but we just talk about some of the interesting casting choices that they made in there. We also talk about the film Eight Mile. For some reason, it'll make sense when you get there. Maybe. As far as content warnings, there's also some discussion of the infidelity and dueling that occurs in the play, as well as slave rape. So be advised if those are topics that you're sensitive to. Otherwise, I think that's it. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. So Hamilton tells the story, unsurprisingly, of Alexander Hamilton a young immigrant who has been left orphaned by tragic circumstances, who arrives in New York. He joins the American Revolution, having met uh, Aaron Burr, Lafayette, Tokyo's Mulligan, and John Lawrence. Ends up marrying into the wealthy Schuyler family, who also have political machinations within their history. And then he wins the Revolutionary War. By himself. Yep. No. Um, he becomes George Washington's right-hand man, effectively acting as a secretary slash strategist with him, um, and eventually getting his own command during the final battles of the revolution, and they win. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> he and his friend slash rival Burr both have children born almost around the same time, and then go on to practice law in New York. At which point we enter the second part of the musical, which you know because the screen goes black and it says intermission, and apparently the intermission is one minute long. It's very strange. It's not enough time to do anything! Part two sees Hamilton as the Secretary of the Treasury versus Jefferson's Secretary of State and the political rivalry that starts there. Hamilton cheats on his wife and is then blackmailed for it. Jefferson, Burr and Madison are trying to dig up dirt on him and find the payments and accuse him of speculation with the guy that he's been paying off. And Hamilton tries to get out ahead of everything by publishing a pamphlet that explains, oh no, I was just having an affair, which means everyone now hates him, especially his wife. Hamilton's son Philip ends up in a duel trying to defend his honour, in which he dies, and sort of the tragedy of that ends up bringing him and his wife back together, and he's sort of left politics behind and has sort of tried to retire from it all, but then the election of 1800 comes around, there's a tie between Burr and Jefferson in the polls, and Hamilton gets dragged in to endorse one or the other of them. He endorses Jefferson over Burr, Burr gets mad at him and challenges him to a duel, in which he ends up killing Hamilton. Which is a very brief summary of a two-hour and 40-minute play, despite the fact that it was a very long summary. If you are a history scholar but have never seen the musical, you might be questioning some of that. We will get into that, briefly. Yeah, the summary of the play is most definitely not an accurate historical summary of the events that inspired the play. So there's yep. definitely been some creative license taken, and, and that's all to the service of telling a good story. Yes. Okay, shall we get into it? Sure. So I think the first thing that we want to talk about is one thing that has been talked about quite a lot with Hamilton, which is the casting and sort of how that plays into the story that they're telling and how it ends up being told. Sure. I assume you're referring to the fact that the cast is very diverse and predominantly people of colour, especially brown people. 
and how that is in contrast to a lot of things that are trying to represent a period in history dominated by white people, especially white men, and the arguments used to not cast people of color being like, oh, but it's not historically accurate, and feeling like, I mean, none of it's actually happened. Precisely. When we're casting historical figures in things, sometimes there's a concern about trying to find someone that looks like them, but a lot of the time it's just a random person, but people have got very hung up on skin colour for these things. I think taking this cast of characters who are all so problematic, especially within regards to race, and... As in the Founding Fathers that are mainly highlighted here are almost all slave-owning white guys. Yeah. Yes, precisely. Taking those characters and those voices, taking the point of view of a Founding Father who was also an immigrant, and telling it through a hip-hop musical... It gives it this reclamatory atmosphere that is something that people have been needing to hear, which is that America is for everyone, immigrants, people of colour, it's not about white guys. Agreed. I think they that the discussion in the extras that we mentioned at the beginning gets into that a lot about how this is the story of America then told by America now, where they're having the cast visually and literally represent what America looks like right now and what the future of America looks like as our demographics continue to shift toward greater and greater proportions of people of color um, as our country gets more and more integrated as painful and halting a process as that has evidently been, you know, we're still experiencing a lot of completely necessary protests in our streets right now to really show everybody just how far we still have to go with that and just how segregated and discriminatory our country still is. But that is in some ways reflective of the greater power in numbers that we have now as our demographics are shifting so that there isn't a massive majority of white people who can just sort of keep everybody else down um, and subjugated. So I definitely think that that's a powerful symbol just to have completely thrown out this excuse that kept being used for historical based creations of, well, all the figures that we're talking about were white. And so we're constrained by that. It's like, no, you're not. This is a creative exercise. You can do whatever the fuck you want. It's a very considered thing that is part of the message that's being put out there, which is that this country belongs to everyone and the stories we tell about it should reflect all of us. Yeah, and I think that that's done some great things for culture on a wider level as well. I want to say that it's since Hamilton became acknowledged mainstream for that blind casting that we've seen more other shows present a more diverse cast even if they're in some way historical. We've recently been watching The Great, which does bill itself as an occasionally true story about Catherine the Great. If that show's creator had said, it's Russia in the 1700s, everyone should be white, they would have probably got away with that without anyone really complaining too much. But they haven't done that, they've made it a very diverse cast, and there's no comment made about it. It's just, okay, this person's played by a person of colour. Cool. Moving forward. And I don't feel like I'm pulled out of the reality, and I it doesn't detract from the story in any way, and it makes it more accessible to more people. I think that having thrown that out in Hamilton, in addition to making this history that is applicable to all of us in this country, reflective more of all of us in this country. It's also helping to show how artificial and unnecessary that barrier is in all forms of 
creative development and projects in terms of casting or you know describing who your who your characters are and what they look like and where they come from. Yeah, and I think we've seen a similar sort of shift in the cosplay community as well. Oh, definitely. I think that there's much more acceptance of cosplaying outside of your quotes body types and builds and etc. And much more acceptance that like if you want to cosplay a black Harley Quinn, sure. If you're white, you still shouldn't do blackface. We can agree on that. But that doesn't mean that you can't dress up and cosplay as a black character. I think that that might be an ongoing conversation. I think it's important for white people to be able to see themselves in black characters, and I think cosplay is an important part of that. For the same reason that you should have video game protagonists where you have to play as like a black character, encouraging people to see through other perspectives is a good thing. I don't, I think that encouraging people to appropriate it is a good thing. And that's why I don't think like you should do blackface or anything. But anyway, this is going to be a whole other conversation, but like, I don't think it makes sense to create an artificial distinction between like what is and shouldn't be aspirational based on race. Does that make sense? It's like saying, telling a, a white kid, no, you can't dress up as this character that you love and admire and see yourself reflected in for other like character personality reasons because they're black like it tells that kid that there's something wrong with being black okay do you see what i mean yeah like if a small white girl wanted to be tiana for halloween and you told her no you can't because she's black and you're white yeah it's telling her there's something different and bad about wanting to be a black character does that make sense yeah okay i see your point but we should acknowledge, like, we're obviously limited in our ability to to talk about this from our perspective, because despite our own intersectional identities, none of that includes not being white. <laughs> and so we yeah. don't have the fullness of that experience and can really only do our best and keep trying to do better. But there's just a lot we're not going to know about what that's like. So I'm sure that there are a lot of people of color and black people specifically who are talking about this specifically in cosplay in Hamilton and in other like creative things and you should definitely seek out what those individuals have to say on this topic. Yeah. To go back to the stuff about the diverse casting, one of the things that David Diggs, who plays Lafayette and Jefferson, he says it in the half hour interview that's on the Disney Plus extras, that having people of colour playing these characters is their way of saying that we built this country too and that there's sort of a hope to inspire people to action through it, which I think is an important element to it. Particularly right now. Right, precisely. I mean, there's definitely, if you haven't yet, go and watch that interview because there's a bit where they're talking about the protests and stuff and I think they're obviously going to say it better than we can. Mm -hmm. But I think that that leads us into talking about the way that the play deals with history, both in an element of how history is told and how history should be told. It's very aware that it's telling a history and that histories are often one-sided and somewhat incomplete. There's a couple of points that make it very, very apparent within the story. One of the most notable ones is the song Burn, in which Eliza is talking about the fact that she is burning the letters from Hamilton to Hamilton and taking herself out of that narrative. Like, she's literally said, I'm removing myself from the narrative and saying, like, history doesn't get to know what I said and how I felt about this and all of that. Like, essentially, like, that she has a right to her privacy and her feelings about this very personal tragedy. 
in her life. And then later on at the end, when she says she's putting herself back into the narrative, as the actress is discussing the way that Eliza Hamilton curated a legacy of Hamilton and his comrades by interviewing the people he served with and by campaigning for the Washington Monument and doing a whole lot of other endeavors to solidify his place in history. It's very clearly referencing the way that people build history and decide what's going to get remembered by dedicating time and attention to it. Yeah. One of the things I like about Byrne is that it does that job of recognizing that history is a narrative that is put together by certain people, but also it does sound like the song of a historian that's really frustrated by it at the same time. Sure. But I mean, that ref- the refrain in the the refrain that's reprised in the final song is "Who li- who lives, who dies, who tells your story," which right. is a quote from Washington earlier on in the musical. Mm-hmm. But then in this case, it's Eliza who's telling the story of Hamilton. Back to Byrne, though, like. I think it's effectively, like, in a different medium, it's a beautiful use of negative space, if that makes sense. Yeah. So somebody was trying to put together the pieces of what happened, trying to construct the timeline of Hamilton's life and how his life and his actions affected everyone else. And they got to this really important, pivotal moment in his marriage, and they couldn't find shit from Eliza about it. And they were like, okay, well, the absence of this content, when we know there's references to it having existed is in itself a piece of the narrative. Right. The other place that the sort of missing information from history is really evident is with the uh, room that it happened, Mm -hmm. where Burr is talking about the fact that we don't know how this conversation went down. We know what came out of it. We know what went into it. But we can only speculate as to how that went about. And we can go off of, well, there's Jefferson's account of it. But, I mean, who, who trusts Jefferson? And there's some details in the play that I I have to assume are included because they are things that we do have evidence for, because they're so specific. Like, Jefferson says he planned the menu. And we know Jefferson was, like, the foodie of the Founding Fathers. That's probably a thing that happened. I mean, I haven't fact-checked that, but I would bet it is. And it's just, like, a little aside, but it's part of that, like, what's there that you can use to kind of unfocus your eyes and kind of see a picture emerge. And that's what you have there. And you see how angry Burr is about it, about how these backroom deals are literally shaping the future of the country. They resulted in the decision behind where our capital was placed, which is a huge decision in terms of like who's going to have access to you know the halls of government. It's interesting too, there was a Times article that a friend of mine recently shared that's from April 2016 when Hamilton first kind of became like a huge phenomenon or was like really hitting like a lot of prominence. And it we'll probably talk more about it later. And it's centered on, you know, that kind of Burr might get a little bit of a raw deal on Hamilton. But one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting is the discussion of how like Burr was probably one of the more um, egalitarian minded, like of the founding fathers in that like he seemed to kind of campaign more to have a wider representation of people in, like, these kinds of decision-making processes to have representation of the middle class and or to not have these decisions made behind closed doors. So I, I appreciate that nod to his efforts in that direction, that he's so mad that this is the way that these things are going down. Which is interesting because that song is him coming to the realization of, if I don't get into that room as well, my interests and potentially the people's interests won't be represented in there. Right. And I don't think that's as clear in the play, but again, I think that's some of the fullness of 
m many of these characters, including Burr, is sacrificed again to the altar of a good story and archetypes like him being the villain. Yeah. I mean, certainly within the play, he is represented as the reason he wants to be in there is so he can be in there and sort of have the power. And it's less about the representation of people. I think it's interesting that we get this story that's told as a history that does have these gaps in the knowledge in certain places that are recognised. And then in that final song, they're talking about the history that does get set up and how Eliza does all these things to, you said, curate a legacy. And it's this interesting sort of two-handedness side of things. I think that in the end, we're supposed to very much be with Eliza. And suddenly it's a very emotional point, and I, I am with Eliza from the story side point of view. But if you take a step back to the song before and Burr's point of view, he's trying to defend himself in the eyes of history and saying, this wasn't what I wanted to happen. I thought that he was going to shoot me, and he didn't, and now I'm the villain. Mm -hmm. There's the whole thing about he was wearing his glasses and he was fiddling with his trigger and I didn't know why he might be so concerned about things. He was clearly going to try and shoot to kill. And Burr's own insecurity playing into that, knowing he's a terrible shot. Like Burr yeah. himself knowing that he, Burr, was a bad shot and that Hamilton had served in the war and led a command and all that. Yeah. You get the impression that maybe Burr challenged Hamilton to the duel and then went, oh shit. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of underlying current of the history that we're told and the history that we're being told in this story and how maybe even that leaves something out or is still a one-sided perspective. And we can get into a bit more later about Burr and who he was as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably an element of it's very hard to have a perfect history of anything mm -hmm. because there are shades of grey in everything. Definitely. I think it's important to recognise that the part where Burr is kind of telling his side is meant to sort of fill in because you already know Hamilton's side. And that adds to the tragedy of the outcome because you already had seen Hamilton counselling Philip to not shoot the other guy at a duel, that it's more about the performance of the thing. It's not about killing someone, because then you have to live with that, and, and that's horrible. So we know going in, Hamilton's probably not going to shoot Burr, but Burr doesn't, and that's part of what makes it so sad that Burr then does kill someone who was a long-standing part of his life, even if it was in a somewhat contentious way. Yeah, and I think it's worth like looking back to the first duel that we see with Lee, where Hamilton and Burr are the seconds, and they're having that conversation where Burr's like, I mean, we know these are ridiculous, right? We don't need to die for this. And Hamilton's like, well, other people died. And you see the maturity that grows in him. Mm -hmm. But it does make an interesting juxtaposition and sort of him learning from Burr. I think that there's an interesting aspect of Hamilton and Burr learning the worst things from each other. Hmm. You start off with this thing where Hamilton speaks far too much about things. And Burr is far too reserved about everything. And is just like willing to let people believe that he's on their side no matter what. And then as the things go on, you get Hamilton saying, Oh, I've, I've learned from you that I should... Talk less, smile more. Right, and sort of connive to get my way. And then you have Burr during his campaign is going out and talking to everyone and Hamilton's like, oh, you're openly campaigning. And it's like, yeah, I, I learned from watching you. Like they've To both... fight for what I want and take action. Right. They've both taken one of the major traits from the other person and applied it to their life in completely the wrong way. Yeah, and that's interesting when you also consider that fairly early, like in Act 1, it's set up that Burr has a relationship with a married woman 
that he then ends up marrying. And Hamilton is kind of judgmental about it, but, like, not super judgmental about it. And then later on, he, like, ends up having a long-standing affair with a married woman as well. But in the worst possible way. <laughs> right. Again, in the worst possible way, where in Burr's case, it's this one is married to a British soldier who, I don't know what happens, but he ends up marrying her. And so it's he started this thing in a bad way, but kind of made good on it, kind of, at the end. I mean, I don't really know how... There, there's a lot of murkiness there. It's one of those things where it's okay because he was British. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're very much villainizing her husband as having been a British soldier, but... He starts something disrespectfully and then ends it in what's considered respectful for the time. Whereas then Hamilton, that's just disrespectful all the way. Starts disrespectful and somehow gets worse. Um. Right. And by also hurting, like, publicly humiliating his wife. Yeah. So there is this sort of notion that there's a deeper version and a more nuanced version of history than you get told in a narrative. Which is particularly notable when you look at some of the history behind the musical that we see. And I mean, a lot of the changes that have happened are because it's easier to tell a story that way or it's more compelling as a story that way. And some of those things are fairly major and some of them are more minor. I'm not going to go into all the bits, partially because I don't want to research the entire thing. Have you seen the Ron Chernow book? It's really big. (laughs) The musical's based on the Hamilton biography by Ron Chernow. And... That that thing will keep your doors open. I should read it, I'm sure. I haven't. But there's a couple of major ones. One we'll get into in just a moment, but the one of the big things is that the timeline is massively compressed for things. So, for example, the election of 1800 where, where Hamilton endorses Jefferson. In the play, Burr turns around and challenges him to a duel immediately. In reality, it was several years later, and because Hamilton had done some other shit to upset Burr. It's a much better story if it's because he was snubbed in the election, but the point at which the duel happened, Burr wasn't vice president anymore. The musical hints at it, effectively, Burr was vice president for four years under Jefferson and shut out of pretty much every meeting, and then they changed it so that he wouldn't be vice president anymore. But yeah, it was at a later date that the duel actually happened. But it's a much more interesting story if it all happens at once and just his response. Right, that ends up being the dramatic like straw that broke Burr in terms of tolerating Hamilton, yeah. talking shit about him. So the other thing, and I know this is something that you wanted to talk about, is there's the love triangle with Elizabeth and Angelica. I didn't necessarily want to talk about it, but I felt like it was an important storytelling device, that it's not even just one love triangle. There are a few different ones that appear throughout the story. There's the love triangle between Burr and Theodosia and her husband. Mm. There's the love triangle between Hamilton, Angelica, and Eliza. And there's the love triangle between Hamilton, Reynolds, and Maria. Um, Or is that more of a square? I don't know how that works. Does love play into that? Well... It's unclear as to what the nature of that situation is. Sure. But they're all, like, different degrees of toxic and weird. Um, Yeah. But I just thought it was interesting that that kept cropping up as a device, presumably to, you know, add some interpersonal drama to kind of counter some of, like, the historical background. Yeah. Um, And I, I just, I thought it was interesting that we see, like, three of them. Yeah. There is only the one that's really thoroughly explored. Sure. I mean, with Burr's one, we don't even meet the two other parties. With the Reynolds, yeah, that's interesting. I think the Skylar one is the one that's, I think, the saddest for me. And literally the most center stage in the narrative. Right. Because I think that everyone loses in that situation with the way that it's told in the musical. 
everyone would have been happier, different people would have died. It very much sets it up as Angelica and Hamilton were a great match. Instead we're going to go with Eliza, who's fine, very caring and loving, but they don't have the spark that Angelica and Hamilton's. Yeah, they definitely set it up as Angelica is his intellectual equal and the one who challenges and stimulates him like on that level. And he does love Eliza, but she's more of a means to an end in terms of political power because her and Angelica's father was a senator, and so through them he gained access to movers and shakers. Yeah. And that's very evident in the way that they meet. And also that part of the reason that he and Angelica won't work out is because she is too smart to make that sacrifice. Like, she knows her responsibility, and her responsibility precludes her from marrying a guy who has no money. Yeah. And I think it's interesting the way that that's all presented, where Angelica can turn up after the affair has become public knowledge, and Hamilton's like, oh great, you've come to support me! She's like, no! I'm here for my sister, jackass. And then also with like the them both being there when he dies. Mm-hmm. And that does make sense to me in that they set it up that Hamilton and Eliza do reconcile after Philip's death. That in grieving him, they it brings them closer together, at least as part of the play. Now, I don't know how that went down with history. But I could definitely see the way that they've characterized the relationship between Eliza and Angelica, that if Eliza had forgiven Angelica, if if Eliza forgave Hamilton, and he was then acting in the capacity he should be as a husband to her, that Angelica would also then forgive him, or at least let it go, if not completely forgive him. Yeah. We'll revisit that a little bit in Quiet Uptown when we get to Mm -hmm. that. So to be the, like, buzzkill on the whole love triangle thing, apparently Mm -hmm. historians are like, yeah, that's not really supported. The whole Angelica Hamilton thing is uh, certainly not to the degree that it is in the musical, if at all. Sure, and that just kind of reinforces my whole, like, why why are there three love triangles in here? This is a drama thing, isn't it? It's to make it more compelling to the modern audience, I think, because it's a really important feature of a lot of popular stories in pop culture of this era. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting device because it does set up a big what-if of if Angelica and Hamilton had been together instead. Because Angelica seems to understand and respect his work in a different way, mm-hmm. which might be easier to do if you're not married to him. Um, sure, yeah. It takes less off of you yeah. if... Yeah. It's when she's writing the letter because she's going to be coming and visiting, and it's, I know your work's important, and I know you're very busy, but could you spare a few minutes? Mm-hmm. That'd be nice. I understand that. Which I think is the problem with the way that uh, the Eliza relationship is portrayed, is that it's always, why aren't you spending more time with me? Which is a fair critique, but there's never that same acknowledgement of, yes, I know your work is important, but so is your family. Do you have anything more to say on that? I think part of that relates to something that, again, Lin-Manuel Miranda says in the extras of this, part of what captured his imagination about Alexander Hamilton in the first place is this immigrant narrative of having to work four times as hard to get to get half as far. And I think that's part of how he's representing Alexander Hamilton in this, in terms of sacrificing family on the altar of work and trying to create this legacy for the country and lay the groundwork for things that will survive him, which is a thing that that Alexander Hamilton says. So he's trying to build something that will outlast him when he's talking about the bank. So I think that's part of it is like, there is a price for doing great things and working all the time and writing as prolifically as he did. There's a cost in his personal life where he ends up ruining his most deeply held personal relationships. 
in order to devote himself completely to his legacy, basically. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said about legacy, but to talk about the whole immigrants theme first, one of the other things that he says in that interview is that he sort of came into it through the fact that Hamilton is an immigrant and so was Lin-Manuel Miranda's father and has that understanding of the working harder for it. I remember a thing a little while ago when immigration was even more in the news than it has been lately and Lin-Manuel Miranda being like happy but a little surprised at how much the immigrants we get the job done line has resonated with people and how important their representation of both Hamilton and Lafayette as being major parts of the Revolutionary War was. I think it's relevant to note that at the time of the Revolution, there weren't any Americans. Like, you were American because you chose to be an American, and you chose to risk your life to make America a thing, like to make the United States a separate entity. There were people who had been born and raised in the colonies, so there were people who were not transplants from somewhere else in the same sense, but that was still being used to draw some, like, hierarchical line of, like, you know, you're not really American because you came here from the Caribbean in Hamilton's case. And it's like, I mean, there weren't really any Americans, though. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so, like, these distinctions keep being drawn to kind of divide people into classes and tiers, and it's all bullshit uh, dividing tactics to sideline people and make them feel like they can't or shouldn't be allowed to contribute in as meaningful of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important that the show takes the time to demonstrate that even then that was a thing, because Hamilton's introduced as being this scrappy immigrant figure. Mm -hmm. And there's a point at which in the second half you could sort of forget that. You don't have the foil of Lafayette for him to sort of bond with about it. But then you have the character of John Adams, mm -hmm. who is sort of entirely absent from the play, despite the fact that he's a fairly key figure. As the second president, who is, at this point, pretty much only known for being the second president, I don't think anyone can... Uh, I'm sure there are definitely people... I think most people don't really know anything else about him or any, anything else he contributed to the founding of the country. I mean, I saw 1776. There was something about pins. Yeah. In 1776, they do get into more of, like, the effort to actually get the United States to declare independence. That's all sort of things that happened before this play, so yeah. before the timeline discussed in this play. But one of the few things that we do get from him in the weird, like, distorted voiceover that is the only way he's represented is the fact that he calls Hamilton a Creole bastard, which is what drives the two of them apart. But yeah, the, the like, racial slur mm -hmm. used, even at that point, and being put into the play for that. So I think we're going to get a bit more into the songs in a little bit, but I did want to take a moment just while we're sort of talking about history and how it's presented within the story and how it's told to take a look at the song One Last Time. Okay. This is where we have that Jefferson announced that he's resigning and stepping down so he can run for president. And George Washington is going, guys, I'm done. I'm going home. I'm going to take a nap. At least that's my understanding of history. It seems to be pretty much what's being shown here, so... This might be something that you'd be better to speak to, but certainly with my understanding of history, I think it does a very elegant job of showing Hamilton as the people to Washington's guys, I know you expect me to leave forever, but I'm, I'm really done. Um, you should definitely have someone else. This shouldn't be a monarchy. And Hamilton's sort of like, but no, like it's it's you, you're Washington. Yeah, I, I do like that this is included because a lot of people in the States know that we have like a two-term limit for presidents. 
but I don't know how many people are aware that that wasn't originally part of the law or anything. Like, it wasn't written into the Constitution or written into the dictates of the office of the president. Washington served for two terms, and he did voluntarily decide not to continue running or serving as president, and people were surprised that he didn't want to continue being president. And and it set a precedent that he refused to serve more than two terms. He didn't think that it was appropriate to keep doing it because, again, yeah, as you say, like, he didn't want us to just end up with a, another monarchy by a different name. And then, like, what was the whole point of the war and trying to get under, get out from under that kind of system? So it definitely set a precedent where subsequent presidents also didn't serve more than two terms until Roosevelt served four during World War Two, And then after that, it was made law. But prior to that, there had been sort of an understanding of like, well, no one's going to try and serve more than two terms because that's sort of implying that somehow you're better than Washington or, you know, like, I mean, not quite in so many words, but basically, you know, he had set this precedent that doing more than that is overstepping and it's too much for any one individual to lead the country longer than that. And that it's, it's counter to democracy, basically, as, as we try to practice it. It's a nice follow-on from the previous thing where Jefferson and Madison's concern uh, has been that Hamilton's banking plan is too much big government, quotes, and that that's exactly the sort of government they're trying to get out from underneath. And then you have Washington giving a sort of similar take from the other side, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think so much of that song is put together very well to give that full idea of how the nation in general and other politicians are feeling about Washington stepping away and that sort of denial and then the slow acceptance with Hamilton starting to write the speech and giving it as Washington starts to give it and they literally cross over and he fades out as Washington delivers his final address. Yeah. So that's sort of more looking at how they've told all the story. I want to talk about some of the things that we see in the story itself. I've seen a few criticisms of Hamilton that say that it doesn't do enough to talk about the problems with some of these characters with this, that, or the other. And I think there might be a degree of truth to that, but there's an extent to which it's a two-hour, 40-minute play as it is, and there's a limit to how much you can do. Not everything can be perfect. Um, I don't think that it shies away from the fact that these are a group of flawed individuals. Agreed. And I think that those individuals can reflect the country as it was then and as it is now with how Lin-Manuel Miranda has written this. I think the easiest way to see that is the infidelity scandal in terms of like, you've set these people up as these are the big movers and shakers and Hamilton in particular is being somewhat glamorized throughout the entire play. But even in this glamorization of his life and the impact that he had on the country and like how essential he was to us becoming an economic power in terms of establishing a bank and setting our financial and federal system up so that all of the states share their finances effectively. It still includes this incredibly embarrassing and damaging scandal in which he had a long-standing affair and was extorted for money over it and ruined not only his own but his wife's reputation in trying to avoid um, aspersions of a criminal enterprise. And it does not shy away from showing that he made some big fucking mistakes, you know, and he was not perfect and he was weak, literally. Like, that's the whole point of saying no to this, is that Hamilton was weak in terms of his his willpower. And this is going to seem like a weird thing to bring in, but, like, I think it's interesting just from, like, 
of the way brains work and the way people and decisions work, which I know I bring up a lot. That's why you're here. It's, <laughs> it's partly why I'm here, yeah. But I love that that happens right after he has refused to go upstate with his wife and Angelica to go on vacation. And it's like immediately after that, it's showing that he's like, I've been working really hard. I miss, you know, my wife and Angelica and... I've been being so virtuous in these ways in terms of my work and in terms of my commitment to my country. When people exercise their willpower, willpower is a thing that gets tired in people. Hmm. So when you have withstood something, it's much harder for you to withstand other temptations. So there have been a whole lot of studies on this, but it's, it is exactly why, like, you know, when you've been good, quote unquote, you're much more likely to indulge yourself in ways that you might have been able to resist before. We talk between ourselves about, like, passing and failing will checks a lot. But it's it's very realistic the way that here he has torn himself away, exercised this willpower to not go on vacation. It's a thing that he's clearly tempted to do, but knows he really, for the greater good of the country, can't do. And then when this other temptation crosses his path, he can't say no to it. Hmm. And I, I don't know if that's intentional, like, in the way that that's lined up of, like, oh, well, he's in this low point, he can't resist because of that. But it's it's very human in the way that it's done. And I think that reflects the larger, like, humanity of these people, that they make stupid, completely short-sighted mistakes that have huge downstream consequences on their lives, in particular in this situation where, like, there's the refrain, never going to be president now, is something that's chanted when the during the Reynolds pamphlet musical number, where Jefferson and Jefferson's cronies are, like, cackling to themselves that at least now they don't have to worry about Hamilton ever being president because he would never get elected with this kind of scandal, in, you know, in the public mind. So you're seeing that, yeah, he did this great stuff, built something that lasted a long time in terms of the bank, but... He also was a stupid and flawed man in some ways. I think it's interesting that you characterize it as stupid. Well, not stupid. I guess that's not fair. But like he well, made a stupid mistake. No, I think that might be being too kind. Hmm. Is that, I mean, the character that is portrayed in the play does something stupid. Mm-hmm. Whether like, and I think that's part of the problem that some people have with it is that you are to varying degrees glorifying these people where mm. we go, well, he did a stupid thing. Whereas mm. you have to question whether, and I don't know enough about history, so I'm just speculating, whether he thought this was something he really shouldn't do or whether he's sad that he got caught. We're presented with some of the flaws of characters like Jefferson in various forms, one or another, but his slave owning is sort of an aside. Yeah, and I do have problems with the way that Sally Hemings is referenced, like briefly in a, in a somewhat dismissive and um, diminishing way. Because that entire situation between Jefferson and Sally Hemings was just abhorrent. I think there's some more recent evidence of just exactly what the nature of that was. And, like, he started raping her when she was in her teens and kept her locked in a basement, apparently. And she had lots of children by him and was also his wife's half-sister by his wife's father. Like, there's just a whole string of fuck up, fucked up in that. You know, I'll try and find something with more detail about that and put it in the show notes. But... Regardless of it, like there can't be any consent when there's that kind of a power differential. Sure. The fact that it's literally the only references when he's doing his what did I miss number where he's introduced is he's saying like, 
uh, Sally be a deer and like read the letter basically to me. And that's literally the only reference. And then there's the jibe that Hamilton makes at Jefferson during the cabinet battle about the South owning slaves and being financially solvent because of that. And that's literally it. I don't think there are any other references to Jefferson's slave owning, like Jefferson in particular, like being a slave owner and the ethical problems with that otherwise. Yeah. And I think that that's a point where I think something more probably should be said. I can see why perhaps it's not dwelled on as much from the scope of all that they're trying to do there. There is a larger theme of slavery, particularly in the first half. You have Lawrence Mm. and all of his, him being the one that's outspoken about slavery. Campaigning to try and recruit an all-black regiment for the Revolutionary War. Yeah, and then... You have Hamilton sort of picking up some of those ideals, and then in the ending part we have Eliza Hamilton speaking out against it. Mm-hmm. Is it enough in a play about the Founding Fathers? I don't think there's a simple answer. But... I was a little surprised not to see any more about like the Three-Fifths Compromise in that, but I, again, it's probably one of those things of they were trying to put a lot in there and they didn't want to, things to drag too much with those kinds of historical details. But I do think that's an important part of how black people and slaves were viewed and commodified by the political compromises that were being made. I think part of the problem is that the play is about Hamilton rather than about... The founding fathers in general. Yeah. So it does become an aside. Mm -hmm. But but I can understand the issues people have about it, about how it's a somewhat glamorized view of a lot of these people who had a very active role in the slave trade and which there's a thing going around of like, you know, try and put put the situation of slavery in terms that actually make sense to you. Like this is effectively a huge state sanctioned human trafficking operation and pretty much everyone in this play who is being kind of glamorized and idolized to varying degrees were active participants and beneficiaries beneficiaries of that system. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think this leads us into the next point, which is that you do get sort of that rivalry set up in the first cabinet battle where Hamilton is calling out Jefferson and Jefferson, like the southern states slave were owning, but then is put into a position where he does have to sit down and make compromises with those states, more specifically with those people. Right. I think that's another aspect of how these are flawed people. They take such stances against one another, and Hamilton is so dismissive and angry Uh, or so judgmental of the South and Jefferson for being a slave owner and then makes backroom deals with him. like, and the turnaround from when he derides Burr's willingness to kind of play all sides of an issue and play his cards close to the chest, but then he ends up going and doing very similar things and just pot, kettle, etc. None of them are so committed to their ideals that they're not willing to compromise with people who they know are doing things that they don't think are right. To get down to some of the more individual characteristics that you see, there's a selection of memes that I've seen going around for the past couple of years from people who are talking about the experience of the Depression and, like, hitting 30 and not really knowing what to do with themselves because they never thought they were going to live that long, which I think is sort of reflected in Hamilton's viewpoint. He talks about the short life expectancy that he sort of expects to have, and he's getting older and trying to work that out. And you see that transition from there's sort of a musical refrain where he's talking about how will he die? 
and a movement from not being afraid to die and glorifying it, as Washington calls himself out on, of like, oh, you just want to die die with glory and honour and things. And Hamilton's like, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Washington's like, no, 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 no. Right, and Hamilton, uh, Washington's response is, dying is easy, living is harder. And he's right. Being willing to die, I'm, I'm not saying is easy, but... When you're dead, you're done. You don't have to continue working or fighting for the things that you want. What is being set up in this is that the real work is after that threat of dying is passed. It's the the building something that you want to exist and committing to that. Right. Part of the really big split that you see between Act 1 and Act 2 is that particular transition from... I'm ready to die, and that will be how I make my glory and my name will be known in the first act. And then in the second act, we get Washington coming back with, ah, winning was easy, governing's harder. It's mm-hmm. it's no longer about will you live or die, it's about how will you make your legacy that way. Burr and Hamilton have a moment when they're talking about General Mercer, who died and now has a street named after him and has a legacy, and they're going, well, seems like that would be easier, should we try that one? <laughs> like, Yeah, and they're kind of joking together. Yeah. Um, so that's the easy path to uh, to being remembered. But again, it's worth noting, no one knows who that guy is. Right. Like, the people that we do remember are the people who built lasting institutions. But you see several, like, very big differences between Act 1 and Act 2. In Act 1, you have Hamilton, the young scrappy underdog who's trying to make his way through the world and has a team of friends to support him. And then at the end of Act 1, he's made it. Great. He's just been made Secretary of the Treasury. And then the second act, there's no crew of friends of Hamilton. Everyone has disappeared. Lawrence is dead. Mulligan has just disappeared. Lafayette's back in France, and now he's got to deal with Jefferson. Washington's around as a sort of mentor for a little while, but then even he leaves. And then Hamilton's left to just sort of fuck everything up on his own. Well, it's become sort of Hamilton against the world. Like, he's got this narrative of he's swimming against the tide, trying to build something enduring when other people want the government to be a much more loose affair with a lot more independence among the constituent states. Right. And I think that it's it blows my mind that it's not included in the original soundtrack because there's, there's one scene that I saw in the play when we watched it where you have Hamilton receiving a letter that Lawrence has been killed in action after the war was technically over. And it's a letter from Lawrence's father saying that he's dead and that his dream of freeing slaves and making a black battalion will die with him and Hamilton going I've got so much work to do and running off mm-hmm. and it shows that transition point from act 1 to act 2 it stops being about I've got to make a name just for myself to I've got to try and make some larger changes and some bigger things and I think particularly at the moment we can see that in the world like I think right now at this moment we're in an act 1 point mm-hmm where people are out in the streets protesting. And hopefully we're going to get a shifting point where we can be in that position to be making real legislative change. We're seeing some things at the moment where some things are being brought in, but they're not enough most of the time. Mm-hmm. Something about that reminds me of the points where like, people keep being like, why do you write like you're running out of time? Why do you act like you're running out of time? And if you reflect back on the galvanizing moment being finding out Lawrence has died, like it does follow that he feels he's inherited Lawrence's legacy too, or Lawrence's ambitions as well. And he, he doesn't have enough time because he's trying to cram two lifetimes of, of 
ideals and two lifetimes of goals into one lifetime. Not only that, but as well as being a foreshadowing of the fact that he is running out of time, he does die relatively young. It's that message of his dream dies with him, Mm -hmm. that Lawrence's father sends him, that presumably puts Hamilton in a place of, if I die without doing this, no one else is going to do it for me. Mm -hmm. I have to do this thing. I have to get this plan through Congress. I have to do this. I have to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, That pushes him to do all of those things. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's sort of a wake-up call of... You can't wait for other people to do this. If he wants it to happen, he needs to be the one to actually do it. And that's also something like the cast was saying, and particularly David Diggs in the interview and the extras of like hoping that Hamilton, the filmed version, and the protests will be a galvanizing influence on people to make that change that they want to see to you know make America reflect the ideals that it can and should reflect. I keep seeing a whole lot of stuff about, like, you know, in the wake of the protests, a lot of corporations and press offices and things like that keep throwing out these, like, token gestures that, in many cases, are things that places refuse to do in the past, but, like, are ultimately the most low-hanging of fruit. They're only symbolic gestures. They don't substantially help people in any way, help the cause or day-to-day experience of Black Americans. What people actually are asking for and wanting is an end to police brutality, an increase in police accountability, and to voter suppression, meaningful policies that would substantially improve the ability of Black and Indigenous and people of color, like Americans, to fully participate and be fully included in all aspects of American society and American decision-making processes. Yeah. I always get a little bit of a mixed feeling when I see those memes and posts and things shared, which are like... This isn't what we're asking for. We're asking for legislative change and like mm-hmm. changes to the police force, etc. And my initial re- reaction is, well, you can have both. Mm-hmm. We can paint Black Lives Matter on the street and we can have massive legislative change. That's fine. Except that there's the risk of it being a hollow symbol that quietens down just enough people and makes people feel good about themselves that they've done something mm-hmm. enough that they stop pushing quite so hard or stop listening quite so hard. Exactly. That's the concern. And that's, I think, what's behind a lot of those posts is like, no, it's not enough is essentially what it is. Like, it's not necessarily don't remove your racist mascots. We do want you to remove your racist mascots, but it's you can't just do that and expect us to shut up because yeah. that's not the problem. The reason we're protesting isn't because of Aunt Jemima. You know, it's not because of any of that. It's because people are getting murdered in the street. People are getting murdered in their beds. Black people don't feel empowered to drop a package off at their neighbor's house when it's misdelivered. The most basic of everyday tasks are made horribly dangerous for people through absolutely no fault of their own. And that's completely abhorrent and something that we should strive to be better than as a country. Yeah. I feel like we've gone off on a bit of a tangent, but... I I mean, I feel like it's all tied together. We'll just put a content warning in for politics. Uh, (laughs) No, no. People are upset about conversation about Black Lives Matter and ideas of true enshrined in policy equality. Like, they probably really need to hear it. So, with the musical and finally getting to see it performed rather than just listening to the soundtrack, one of the things that I think stood out to us was the way costume changes were used within the show. Yeah, definitely. I was very surprised at how many costume changes there were. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have been because it was a Broadway production. And those do tend to have, like, higher budgets and more attention to details like that. But at least 
in my admittedly limited to, like, high school and college theater experience, but he also, in my experience, like, watching different performances, numerous costume changes seem to be more of a thing for, like, main character's TM, you know? Like, they're part of a signal to the audience that these are important people that you should be able to recognize even if they're in different clothes. And in a lot of cases, the costumes they're in are supposed to be telling you something about what's going on with them at that point in time. Like, they are themselves a commentary on what's going on in the play for that character in a given moment. And I say this because I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, that Angelica and Eliza had numerous costume changes. You see them in somewhat subtly different clothes in each of the times that you see them. And I think that was really nice to see. I know it seems like a weird detail, but it's I appreciate that that reflects on them as being more fully nuanced characters. They're not just the potential love interests and actual love interests or whatever of Hamilton who are like two-dimensional and not that important to the moving forward of him you know, as a protagonist. They are their own people who have their own internal lives and reactions to the things that are going on during the story. Um, and I think it helps you really kind of get a better sense of what is going on in their lives beyond where their lives are specifically intersecting with Hamilton and the events of the play. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I think that was well done. I mean, it's interesting that you say these are people you should be able to recognize even if they're in different costumes, but then there's also... There's also several actors that play multiple roles by changing their costumes. Right, but then those actors, when they're doing that, it, they're in dramatically different costumes. Where, yeah. like, Angelica and Eliza are in different dresses, but they are in, like, a consistent color palette and some similar silhouettes for the most part. Eliza's silhouettes actually change a lot more than um, Angelica's, which makes sense because she has more to do throughout the narrative as you know, having more screen time, basically, or, you know, stage time, actually. But she is consistently in blue and Angelica is consistently in like a sort of coppery reddish brown. That and like their hair often being the same helps you to make sure that you don't mistake them for anyone else. Whereas when David Diggs is playing Lafayette, his hair is up and he's in like usually a military uniform. And then when he's in Jefferson, he's in this very flamboyant purple coat and huge cravat and, like, has his hair out and, like, voluminous to create a very different and very striking silhouette. Yeah. Same with Madison Mulligan. As Hercules Mulligan, he's in, like, a uniform with, like, a scarf, I think. And then as Madison, he's in this more subdued, like, blue suit that makes him look uh, like a much more restrained person as opposed to the very bombastic Hercules Mulligan. Yeah. I mean, like, I, to be honest, I think that the actor playing Hercules and Madison does such a good job that he could wear the exact same outfit and I still wouldn't know it was the same person. He just changes his mannerisms and the way he carries himself so completely between those two characters that mm -hmm. it's it's very impressive. But that's yet another way that the costume changes are helping to cue the audience as to what's going on and who is who with Eliza and Angelica, I think it is showing you that they are important to the story, that they're not side characters. I mean, they are, but they're not. They do a similar trick with the costuming for the guy who plays both Lawrence and Philip, as they do with David Diggs, who plays Jefferson and Lafayette, and Okiriete Anaudouin, whose name I'm probably butchering, who plays Hercules Mulligan and Madison, where the different hairstyle and outfit that they use. And also, in the case of 
Philip posture does a lot to tell you this is a completely different person. Yeah. And they do some of the more classic emotional changes to the costumes as well. Like um, when Philip dies, both Hamilton and Eliza are wearing black. Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit strange because Eliza turns up to Philip's deathbed already wearing black. So maybe there's a conspiracy going on there. But, mm. She she knew before. It's more of a timeline blocking, not able to do a costume change at that point. We also see some costume changes like happening on stage, like when Hamilton gets called back to the war mm-hmm. and gets given a command. That's noteworthy. Well, and also in the opening number, like during periods of time when they're establishing Hamilton's like trajectory mm-hmm. and his transition, like he when he's getting to New York and when he's going to college and things like that. Like, he puts on a bunch of different coats yeah. throughout this period of time to kind of show him, like, climbing the ladder, basically, and going into different roles in society. But I think that was very well done to kind of show that progression. Another thing that I really appreciated is during the Dear Theodosia scene, Burr and Hamilton, who are going through the same major and very relatable, like, life stage event the birth of their first child and the way that that like transforms your perspective on the world or so i understand from people i know who have kids i personally do not but i understand it is one of those things that really does kind of make you reevaluate the world and your place in it and you know what kind of world you are contributing to for your child and they're both wearing exactly the same costume with the exception of like color coding basically hamilton is in a green vest and burr is in an identical purple vest and i think that really just draws them together in a very beautiful way to show that despite all of their ideological differences, they are both human men experiencing this kind of transcendental human experience. Yeah, and I think it is interesting. I mean, the way that they're staged there, where they're split up in like two rooms of light, but Mm -hmm. facing the um, audience in a parallel fashion, does a nice bit to highlight how similar the two of them are in a lot of ways, and how they do grow more similar as time goes on, as I said before, with like them sort of borrowing the worst traits from each other. But I mean also from having both been orphans and having that drive to succeed because they have to try and find the way to make the mark in the world for whichever reason. And I think those parallels make it particularly interesting to have Burr cast as the villain in this, especially as there may be even more that they would agree on. You mentioned that Times article earlier. Right, yeah, there's some indication, at least according to that, that... Burr had a much more egalitarian mindset than a lot of the Founding Fathers and might be one of the least shocked to see America as it is today, like as integrated as it is, and in a lot of ways fought to make sure that more people in American society, more people from different strata of American society, had access to social mobility and decision-making processes and just the halls of power in general. You could very easily do a very a similar sort of production with Burr as the hero, in the same way as Hamilton with similar narrative beats. With Hamilton probably in a somewhat adversarial role at times, and Jefferson also in an adversarial role at times, as he is with Hamilton, where Burr is put in a position where he has to compromise on his ethics in order to move forward with the things that he thinks are necessary to happen. Yeah, I like that point because Hamilton is represented as this underdog figure that has to fight his way up, but Burr is also sort of represented in a similar way as being an underdog, and he's 
when he's narrating, he's got this sort of time of going, I feel like I'm doing all this stuff, but I'm still being one-upped by Hamilton every time. Like, when he goes and is like, hey, Washington, I should be your man. I've got ideas. Mm-hmm. And Washington's like, that's nice. Shut the door. I need to talk to this guy. Right. Like, they are both underdogs in the story. So it's interesting that it's the two of them that come to be the rivals at the end of it, rather than it being a story of them against an establishment or vice versa. It's both of them getting sort of subsumed into the... Yeah, like, uh, they both sort of get stuck in, like, the swamp, you know, of the way people talk about DC politics and, like... Ooh, that's a very Trumpy type word to use. Well, that, that's why I'm I'm talking about it. Like, there's a lot of... There are a lot of good points to be made about corruption in politics and lobbying and people's personal interests ending up being deciding factors on things that they really shouldn't be. Part of the reason that Trump has been able to get so much support is because there is some fire under that smoke, you know? And you do see that in this where they're both kind of getting corrupted by the compromises that they feel they need to make in order to move any of their agendas along. And that's true of both Burr and Hamilton, particularly with Burr, with the switching parties to run against Philip Schuyler. I can definitely imagine that as a, like, an agonizing decision in a narrative centered on Burr, of like, ah, I see this opportunity, but I'd have to switch my political allegiance to take advantage of it. But I would be able to move forward on, like, I'd be getting in the rooms where these things are happening. You know, we need voices like mine in these halls, and I mean, it looks a little bit shady, but, you know, like, I could see that being a fraught, tense, and dramatically interesting story beat. Yeah. One uh, thing I think that emphasizes that is his line about, you know, nobody knows, you know, how the sausage gets made is one of the lines. And like, that's a well-known reference to like processes that everyone knows are kind of nasty and everyone knows they probably don't want to know too much about it, you know? And uh, I think that really just kind of highlights that for both of them, honestly. Yeah. So I think we wanted to go through some of the ways certain parts of the musical are staged now that we've seen that. Definitely. It adds a lot to the ability to understand what's going on. I know, like, having just listened to the soundtrack, like you were talking about before, there were definitely things I missed or misunderstood based on audio alone that are made so much more clear by having the visual representation. Yeah, I mean, just some minor ones, like the song The Skylar Sisters, Mm -hmm. I wasn't entirely clear on who was saying what, which very much changes how those characters are characterized. I think that's more the most true of the ensemble songs, or like the the ones where it is like Hamilton, Lafayette, Lawrence, and Hercules Mulligan. There's a lot of things where where it's pretty clear who's saying what, but not all of it. Yeah, it's particularly Lawrence. I think his lines, I think, get a little bit lost. I think his voice is not quite as distinct as say Lafayette's because there's not a French accent or Lennon Lal Miranda's. Like, so it's not quite clear that when he is talking all the time, and it does make a difference, especially where the foreshadowing of his death comes in. Yeah, um, I think I actually get him and Lin-Manuel Miranda mixed up a little bit mm-hmm. when I'm not hearing them back to back. But I think uh, as far as the staging ones, one of the ones that I think really stood out to me was the songs by king george oh yeah the visuals the blocking and everything which for people who are not as familiar blocking is a term used for theatrical productions where um, that describes where people are for different things 
So where people are physically standing and moving to, and it's something you have to rehearse just as much as your lines, is where you are supposed to go and how you are supposed to move during a scene. And sometimes during that process, it'll be, like, taped out on the floor or, like, blocked out on the actual stage. And so I think that's where that term comes from. But it may or may not be where that term comes from. Point being, that's how I remember it from when I used to be in theater. So the King songs, like, have such a different feel to the rest of them. They always reminded me of, like, a 90s boy band type sort of song. Right. And thus I... In my mind, I had always had them mentally performed as a fairly, you know, like, overblown number where maybe he's dancing around with, like, ridiculous, like, red coat backup dancers or something. Seeing that done with him standing almost entirely still for most of it, a lot of the performance coming from his eyes and how he's singing the lines. And spitting. Yeah. Like, he's literally frothing at the mouth while he is singing, which really adds to the, like, the madness aspect of, like, Mad King George. But also, when he is moving, he is mi- he is moving very deliberately forward with as little movement as possible. Like, literally only walking forward with as little adjustment of his body to the side in any way as possible, which makes it even more unsettling. Just, I think that's, like, the word for the entire number. It's just, it's constructed to be deeply unsettling. Yeah. He's very clearly a comic relief character. Mm-hmm. And I expected him to be portrayed entirely as ridiculous in his performance. And there's certainly some very, like, ridiculous parts of it, especially with, like, when he's sitting down on the chair after his last song, mm-hmm. and, like, when he's stomping his foot to get the lights to change and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, there's that sort of serious staring and, like, the eyes looking crazy... And part of how they look crazy is he's not quite looking at the camera. Yeah. It very much gives that impression of, like, this is someone whose perception of reality is a little off. They're not quite looking at me. And I also think it's very appropriate that he is the most serious and unsettling in that first number, which is during the revolution when he is in a position of power over the colonies. His country has not surrendered. Later, when he's more ridiculous and is more explicitly a comedic presence and a a comic relief is when he's not in a position of power over the colonies in the same way anymore. And he, it is easier to be amused by him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I I, mean, he was also losing his mind more by those points, but yeah. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, I I think it, it make, I think that it works very well to show like he is more ridiculous now because he's not over us now. He can't bombard us with ships and troops anymore. So, wait, you guys learn various bits about British history. How much do you know about King George that you would learn in school? I think we did learn that he was crazy or, like, he lost his mind. But I don't think we learned much detail about that. Didn't he have one of those congenital Habsburg diseases or something? I I forget exactly what he had, but it was a degenerative disease and he was known as Mad King George. Yeah. So We get that part. No surprise the unfavorable propaganda about him does survive in our history books. Interesting. Yeah. But back to the tone of the song, or like not so much the tone as the style, like in contrast to everything else musically, which is a hip hop musical, very clearly and intentionally drawing from the inspiration of black artists and genres of music that are filled predominantly with black artists. King George's song, King George also being one of the very few white cast members 
or the guy who plays him being one of the few white cast members, is also like the whitest music of all of the numbers. Right. I could see like it being performed by a group of like white teenage fuckboys done in a style of explaining to a girl why they should date them despite the fact that they're fuckboys. Mm-hmm. Sure. While we're talking about blocking, I think uh, the sort of dual song of Quiet Uptown and then the election of 1800 makes sense to talk about. Sure. Quiet Uptown is the setting up of that, like, I, I'm i just going to hang out uptown and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to start praying and I'm going to get back with my wife and then the election of 1800 is when all the politics are going, who are you going to vote for? And he's like, it is nice uptown. The way that's staged and the way that everyone is arrayed and like talking about them, but distant from them while they're walking, while Hamilton is walking during It's Quiet Uptown and talking about his solitary experience at the beginning of grieving Philip's death and then then his experience with Eliza of grieving their son together does a beautiful job of illustrating like how isolating grief can be and how it sort of can change your relationship with the rest of the world in terms of your priorities and what breaks through to be relevant in your experience at that time, if that makes sense. Like, these are events that, before Philip's death, would have been, like, the center of Hamilton's attention. The election, the drama, and the political, you know, scheming going on between people he knew and had influence of, had influence over, like, that would have been consuming all of his attention. But in this experience of grief, which is, again, like, one of these transcendental human experiences, None of that matters anymore. It all falls away. It's kind of pushed away. And there's a literal physical buffer of space between him and all those people consumed by that stuff. And I just thought it was very beautifully done. Hmm. I think two of the songs that made the biggest impact on me with seeing the production as well were, first off, Satisfied. Hmm. With its combination of helpless, there's certain beats that where the timeline isn't quite clear in just the soundtrack mm-hmm. of working out exactly what order introductions and things are happening because it is the scene and then flashbacks to that scene. And not just seeing that done, but also seeing how they do the rewind segment of Satisfied, where it's a much more pared down version of the party scene. So there aren't as many people on stage, and you sort of get this. Angelica's perception of the evening. Mm-hmm. I thought that the way that people t- like were moving around her and the lighting all through that that did a really good job of making how clear it was that that was going back into her mind and making it a weird scene. I agree. I also think that it does a really good job of showing a distinction between what actually happened, or at least the play's representation of the actual party, versus how our minds end up curating a memory of something that happened based on our own biases and our ideas of what's important to remember down the line. Like you said, with fewer people and things like that, like she's not necessarily as focused on remembering exactly how many people were at the party or whatever. It's, I saw Hamilton and we had this great conversation and then I came to all these conclusions and you're getting that altered perception that's the way that we all create memories. Like, none of our memories are actually true reflections of what happened. They are all reflections of what our brains decided was important to remember about what happened, which is a totally different thing. Also, it puts it into stark relief that it's the only other time, other than when Burr is talking, that someone talks directly to the audience. 
Mm. It's a courtesy extended to her that she can just be like, okay, let me pause here and explain to you what's going on. Yeah, it's one of the only other places, I think, aside, as you say, from Burr, where you're getting not even just things that happened that affected Hamilton, but, like, the inside of someone's mind, like, the interiority of someone who's not Hamilton. Yeah, and I think that is sort of extended to the Skylars in general, though, because... Eliza, you're right, does. Well, that, yeah, because she gets Burn as well, and the mm-hmm. final song, but also the Skylar sisters' song mm-hmm. serves to introduce those characters without introducing them to Hamilton. The first time we meet them, them isn't when Hamilton meets them. You're they're right. introduced as solid characters before that. Well, they're introduced no. as two solid characters, and Peggy's there too. But, like, she gets to, like, kind of defend her decision in a similar way to Burr. Yeah. And that's, I think, a unique perspective that you get from her. Yeah. And I think the other one that I think... I thought the staging for this one was just stunning was um, Hurricane. Mm. They've got this rotating stage where the center moves and then the ring outside it moves separately that they use to some fantastic footwork from some of the performers, like particularly the Skylar sisters who at some point are walking backwards on that in heels in circles and... I don't understand. But um, in Hurricane, where they've got, like, all the furniture and even, like, people lifted up, going around Hamilton, and then frozen, as if they're caught in a hurricane. Which could have looked very cheesy, but, like, I know, it was just immensely impressive to me. It was, and it's the combination of that blocking with the lighting. Yeah. The way that Hamilton is spotlit, and the way that that ring is in, like, blue tones... That really evokes that kind of a natural disaster and like the water, like that idea of swirling water in a way that is very representational, but also, as you say, it works without being cheesy and becomes very powerful, like visually. I think the other part of that is that while he's writing that and it's sort of this impending doom moment, Mariah Reynolds is underneath the staircase watching him the whole time Mm -hmm. as just sort of like this creepy ghostly figure. Well, and then she walks through the hurricane and joins him in the eye. And it's sort of heralding the end of his being in the safe spot in the middle is her kind of breaking that wall. And she gives him the pen. And she gives him the pen and he starts writing. And at that point, he has let go of that moment of peace. Yeah. There are some interesting ways that a cast member is used as an interesting herald of things. You pointed out the like the woman who symbolizes death. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I um I regret that I can't remember where I saw it. It was just something that came across my feed that pointed out this character just before we're about to sit down and watch it. So I read like the first paragraph. But there's a figure that is, with the exception of Hamilton's mother and cousin, is the first person to die. She's passing a note, like just after the king's first song, and gets killed. The actress playing that part is then in contact with every character that dies shortly beforehand, and also represents bullets whenever they're necessary. There's a point when a soldier just shoots and Hamilton's there reading, and she carries the bullet over his head, and it's sort of a, that's weird moment. But then, like, with the jewels, particularly the jewel at the end, like, she's got the bullet and is moving towards her, but, um, moving towards Hamilton. But she's also passes Lawrence a note and then helps him take down an English Schultz soldier, and then he dies shortly afterwards. She's one of the women that Philip Hamilton is flirting with before he gets into a duel and dies. Well, I think it's even more than that. Like, she's the one who tells him where to find the man he wants to challenge. Yeah. Because he's asked, that's what he's asking as he's flirting with them. He's asking them where he can find that guy, and she tells him. Yeah. So in that way, she, like, 
is literally leading him to his death. Yep. But I appreciated that that character is dressed in the same white costume that most of the other chorus members are in, except that she has a more, like, distinctive hairstyle, so it is a little bit easier to, like, notice that she keeps being there and, like, she's the one carrying the bullets and things like that. So you can follow her progress, but also she can fade into the background and, like, be part of the story. Yeah. uh, In a less obvious way. You're not, like, constantly aware of her. Yeah. There are a few songs that I wanted to talk about, just sort of how they function within the story for storytelling independent of seeing them in performance. Like, the performance was useful, but didn't add quite as much, but I think they're still worth talking about. And one that sort of sits on the balance for that for me is Say No to This. Mm. Because I hate that song. It's the watching the drama when someone's going to do something stupid and you're sitting there screaming at the TV and going, Ah, oh, why are you going to do this thing? You it's idiot. Cringy. It's cringy, that's the way of putting it. The performance on stage, for some reason, like, made it less, much less cringy for me. I don't know if my imagination is just worse than the performance is or what. But I did find it more palatable, which might be a bad thing in the representation of Hamilton, I'm not sure. I wonder if part of that is that seeing it performed with, like, people and, like, seeing the struggle and the fact that Hamilton is clearly also not happy about making this decision might help in some ways to kind of understand the choice even if you don't endorse it. Like, just because I get it doesn't mean it's okay, but also, like, recognizing that people are flawed and make mistakes and that doesn't mean that they're garbage humans or can't improve down the line. Do you think that might be an aspect of just having faces to put to these actions and, like, body language that gives a little bit more nuance to what's going on? I don't know. I think it might just be that, like, in the mental staging, people do this, right? When they listen to musicals, they imagine how it would be staged. This isn't me being weird, right? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do that, not everyone. Okay. I know there are people who can't make mental representations like that. But... It was certainly not explicit, but more graphic. Mm. So I think that might have helped. The fact that it wasn't graphic, it was fairly like symbolically done. Yeah, but I don't know. The, I think the song drives me crazy because it is like, I shouldn't do this thing, but I'm going to do this thing. I don't know much about the actual, like, history behind Hamilton's affair and things like that, or the extortion, but there's definitely an implication that Hamilton was, like, helping this woman out financially, and, like, in this it's set up as, you know, she asked him for help and, like, preyed on his, like, chivalry or something, you know, and then tempted him after that. But, I don't know, it might be partially, like, that Me Too is still going on, and, like, power differentials are still an important thing, and things like this, where, like, I mean, that may not be how this thing started. Like, this may have very well been a situation of, like, this is a powerful and influential man who may have coerced this woman who was married into having a relationship with him, and she may or may not have felt empowered to refuse... Yeah. Like, I don't know enough about the situation to say for sure, but, like, I do think it is definitely set up in a way to make you want to forgive Hamilton. And as you say, like I was saying before, like, it was a stupid thing, characterize it as a stupid thing rather than as a fucked up and gross and misogynist thing. I I do struggle to forgive Hamilton. And I I struggle a little bit with Eliza's decision to forgive Hamilton. Like, I can see it being, like, the, the, the coming together over the grief of the loss of a child. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, fuck Hamilton. Because it As is... your wife, I approve of your oh. feelings on infidelity in this way. It's set up so much as a, 
oh, this this terrible woman seduced me, and it was her husband's fault and her fault. It wasn't my fault. I I was really tired. Uh-huh. I'd been under a lot of stress at work, <laughs> and and this woman just boobed into my life and. <laughs> What was I supposed to do? Not sleep with her? Yes, you were supposed to not sleep with her. That was literally the thing to do. Like, it does also, on re-experiencing of the play, make the parts where, like, Eliza's falling in love with him and, like, getting married and things like that, like, so much more heartbreaking because you know he's going to betray her and he's not going to be satisfied and she is going to be hurt by him in that way and, like, her father tells him to be true and like you know he won't um it's just and he she seems so sweet and so nice and that is what angelica says about her that she is deeply kind and compassionate and when you know that that's going to happen all of that's going on you're just like you do not deserve this woman yeah i'm just thinking this now i also i also think there could be some implication that maybe hamilton wouldn't have cheated on angelica because he would have been like intellectually challenged by her in different ways and she appreciated his work more and stuff and i think that's kind of bullshit to kind of make it again not hamilton's fault but in a different way like then it's kind of eliza's fault for not being angelica i'm like that's fucked up do you know what i mean like i feel i'm i feel like i'm not quite capturing it but i think you know what i'm saying it's kind of everyone in the play's fault except for hamilton's that his life is ruined it's like yeah. And then it's Jefferson and Madison and Burr's fault for letting them... You've put me in a position where I have to tell everyone who I slept right. with. Like, No, you could have just not. And also there's like the fact that it wasn't like one time. Mm-hmm. Not that that would be okay, but the protracted affair, like, at a certain point, that's a choice you're making. That's a choice you're continuing to make. The point at which you regretted this was when it came out. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. if it had been one time and you'd gone oh god, what have I done, and then that came up later, you would still be wrong, but, like, more understandably so. Yeah, well, also, like, the whole problem he gets into is because he does have a protracted affair with her. If he had had, like, a single encounter with somebody and then regretted it deeply and maybe talked to his wife about it and they handled that situation privately, that would be one thing. There wouldn't be a trail of money to then lead to this getting exposed and humiliating her or anything. Um, and I say humiliating her not because she did anything wrong, because of the nature of the time. I, it's not clear, but there's also an implication in the play that maybe Eliza finds out from the pamphlet. It does definitely seem that way, which is just not okay. Like, if you're going to do that, you need to tell her first. You should at least be telling her, okay, this is going to come out. I want you to hear it from me, kind of a thing. Moving on. <laughs> Other songs that I think do what they do very well, obviously the cabinet battle. The cabinet battle is awesome. It really makes something that could be super dry and usually is a disagreement and stance on a political issue, tuning into C-SPAN basically, into something that is hilarious and also accessible in terms of like anyone understands the positions that they have. And I, I just thought that it was brilliantly done. It makes it funny and also makes it biting and it, it shows a lot in terms of both where they're coming from on the issues, but also the kind of people they are and how they are, like, the way that they choose to attack an opponent. Yeah, and I think it also does a lot for sort of world-building, as it were, Mm. as far as what's going on politically and socially at that time. Sure. I think it does a very good job of very quickly explaining the debt situation, which is very strange. Oh, I think it's also fantastic that they have it um, emceed by 
Washington. Yeah. In his role as president. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, present your case. <laughs> yep. I also appreciate that at the end, like, he does, as in a rap battle, adjudicate who wins. And Jefferson wins. And at that point, Jefferson and Madison gloat over Hamilton saying, you're going to need congressional approval and you don't have the votes. They just keep saying that uh, just to kind of taunt him about that he lost. Does Jefferson win as such, or does it just not matter if he doesn't have the support? Well, it's that Washington says, basically, his point stands. You need to figure out a way to get this plan through Congress otherwise. Yeah. But yeah, that does set up the, I'm under a lot of pressure at work that you're talking about with uh, the way that the story kind of does try to scrape all the blame as off Hamilton as much as possible for his Again, long-standing affair. The details of which do not help him. Like, the fact that... Hi, Shadow. The fact that he includes, like, that he often slept with this woman in his own house while his wife and son were visiting her parents. It's just, like, details that just make him look even shittier, you know? Oh, it's okay. Her husband knew about it. (laughs) I feel like you could have put a little pamphlet out that just said, Hey, it says that I was doing this, but I was being blackmailed because I had an affair. Yeah, you don't need to go into all those details. All that does is, again, like, make things harder for your family. I mean, it's not in the play, but really what didn't help was the drawings. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that part of the point of those details and stuff, though, is to be consistent with Hamilton's character as someone who is overly dramatic and hot-headed and, like, just goes too far with things. It's like, I'm going to (laughs) prove that this is not the situation they thought, and I'm going to prove with an abundance of detail beyond a shadow. It's the 75 uh, itemized uh, disagreements he had with Burr, you know, just earlier. You know, it's it's him going overboard and, and providing way more detail than anyone ever asked for because he feels like he has to. Which leads us into the next song on my list, which is Your Obedient Servant. Yeah, that's great. Which is such a brief song to lay out so much back and forth Mm -hmm. with the letters between Hamilton and Burr. That one is great. Just the biting formality of it, just the way that etiquette is weaponized in that song, it just really adds to all the venomousness of it. It's great. Yeah, and it allows for what is effectively a shouting match. To be performed in a sort of light sing-song way. And that one, you have, again, that Hamilton going way overboard, overwriting with the details, in that Burr is like, you were insulting to me, and Hamilton's like, which time? Here's an itemized list of all the times that I've disagreed with you publicly. And just like him giving paper after paper to the pages, carrying stuff back and forth across the stage, basically making it rain with insults to Burling. I think it's that same aspect of Hamilton that is why he's including all those sordid details about the affair. You know, come to think of it, it's very similar to like Eight Mile, gonna tear himself down so much that no one, so no one else can. No, because I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. Eight Mile is a movie starring Eminem, pretty much playing Eminem, and there is a pivotal rap battle scene in it where, as a, you know, white rapper, like, he's anticipating his opposition just tearing him down, just making fun of him with the rap battle. And so instead, he tears himself down, like, hard preempting it is like what are you going to say about me that i haven't already said essentially and uh there's a similar thing going on there with the the reynolds pamphlet obviously the reynolds pamphlet came out hundreds of years before eight mile i i acknowledge this but 
also may have stylistically influenced the way that that is presented on stage in Hamilton. But yeah, it is very much this, no, I'm going to point out my own flaws, and then I've taken the power to do that away from you. Yeah. Hmm. Now we are going to have to have a content warning for 8 Mile. Spoiler warning. <laughs> Spoiler warning for 8 Mile. I did just write it down. <laughs> I feel like we could have like a little bit at the beginning of a little quiz of like, which of these three things do you think we did a spoiler warning for? <laughs> From a like storytelling perspective, I think the Ten Jewel Commandments is a really key and interestingly done song. Oh yeah, definitely. It performs so many functions, especially with the reprisals. You have the fact that somehow you've managed to put a primer for how to duel someone in the late 17 and the 1800s into a hip-hop song, which just just kudos. I'm just impressed. Like And make it clever and catchy. Yeah. Um, I could now tell you how to have a duel. And having set it up the first time with Lee, they're then able to call back to it in a way that, in a way that's like, hey, you remember that thing we did earlier? We're just going to run through that quickly. But we're going to talk about more plot relevant things because with Lee, the exact details of it aren't massively necessary to the plot. It's more the fact that Hamilton is part of it that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the later two duels, like the reasons that they're there are what's important, not the mechanics of a duel. Agreed. Like, they then are able to use it as sort of a shorthand to, like, remember how a duel works? We're gonna cue you so you do. And now, here is the drama associated with this particular duel. Um, and it's, with the counting, it sort of helps to ramp up the tension as well. Mm-hmm. It's just all neatly put together for that thing. Yeah, I think so. Can I say how, like, mad I am at Hamilton for getting and killed in a duel after his son died in a duel? It's like, you idiot. You and your wife reconciled finally, and now you're gonna put her through this. You put her through enough already without this bullshit. Yeah, this is like there is very much part of me that's like the first act is really great, and then the second act is well done, and the end is very emotional. But there are parts of it that I just like. Well, it's you either die a hero or you grow old enough to see yourself become the villain, and I I think that that's what you're seeing here is he's this great heroic figure in the first act, this great hero of the Revolutionary War, and then when he has to actually get involved in politics and governance, things get dirty and messy, and he becomes less and less of an idealist and less and less of a hero and less and less unimpeachable of a person. Mm. The real world, quote-unquote, gets in the way, I guess. Gets in the way? Exposes what he's willing to do, I guess, is probably more accurate. To further his ambition and his ideas of what the country could be. Yeah. Did you want to say anything more about the intergenerational stuff? or is it... I mean, I do think that it's important that Hamilton is in a duel during his military career. And if you just think about families and like the stories people tell about their youth and their experience and what they consider to be like the glorious tales of their of their youth and stuff like that. And then the fact that Philip gets into a duel defending Hamilton against, you know, rude characterizations. This is an intergenerational pattern that happens where Philip has learned that duels are an appropriate way to settle a grievance and are tied with masculinity and honor, and then ends up dying in one. I wonder whether the world has taught him that. And he talks about, like, oh, this is my very first duel, as if he's going to have lots of them. But given that Hamilton's characterization is... 
Ah, you're in a duel. Okay, can we get you out of this? Where's it going to be? Oh, Jersey. Well, Jersey's a shithole, so... Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, everything's legal in Jersey, okay, so we can't do that. Okay, well then, just, you know, be honourable. Shoot towards the sky, he'll do the same thing. And that's his take on dueling, is that you should be honourable and not try to kill someone, as we said before. So I don't know that Philip's going to have heard the story of, hey, yeah, I was a second for a guy in a duel once, and it's a great idea. Historically, I think Hamilton took part in a whole load of duels, and it was just... Maybe Philip didn't hear about that specific one, especially since Lawrence did shoot Lee, which is you know counter to Hamilton's advice to Philip. But he's grown up in this environment where duels are presented as an acceptable way to settle a grievance. And even if Hamilton didn't tell him about it, he probably has heard about his father having been involved in duels or having been supporting of a duel and things like that. Point being, I see an intergenerational trend between, like, Hamilton having been involved in duels and Philip presumably having absorbed some of that from him and getting into a duel and dying. Yeah. You know, he learned it from him, basically. So the last thing I want to talk about is the sort of foreshadowing and reprisals that we get a lot. And we talked a little bit about things like... Um, the Tendril Commandments get reprisals and stuff. But the line that gets brought back for Philip is when, in Dear Theodosia, mm. um, Hamilton talks about how Philip will blow us all away. Mm-hmm. And then it's the blow us all away song is the one where Philip goes and gets into a duel. But then you also get things like in the story of tonight, in the first time it comes around, Hamilton opens the song with We May Not Live to See Our Glory. And then the second time is just after Hamilton's got married and Lawrence is the one that leads off the song with We May Not Live to See Our Glory. Which, and of course, foreshadows that he doesn't. Yes, very shortly afterwards he dies. Well, the Blow Us All Away is also a really great double entendre there in terms of he's literally blown away, as in shot. But also in the original verse, it's that he will surprise us, he will shock us, he will make us proud. But then his death is not only the, a factor of having been blown away by a gun, but also it blows Hamilton and Eliza into like a world of grief mm. um, and blows them kind of away from the world in a way, I think in a way. Okay. Like I, yeah. it works on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's fair. I think the two parts where the sort of reprisals and stuff have the most power are the last songs of each act. I know, it's just... Still going back and listening to it again still gives me tingles, mm -hmm. just from how well done it is with nonstop at the end of Act 1, where it brings together all these different elements and like the threads of all the songs from the entire act, where you've got Satisfied and History Has Its Eyes on You and Not Throwing Away My Shot, all brought together in just this build-up to this huge like weaving in of all of those at the same time, and this final like huge blast that just brings it together. Tie it up in a nice little summary. So then at the end of the whole play, you have these two songs that come back to back. Starting off with The World Was Wide Enough, which is the actual duel between Hamilton and Burr. I think one of the most interesting parts of that, the way that it's done, is it does a really great job of evoking the idea of your life flashing before your eyes, or specifically Hamilton having his life flash before his eyes. And the way that that's done is by sort of recalling in a quick summary, done a cappella and with this like, urgency in Lin-Manuel Miranda's voice of the plot to now and some of the themes that he's ruminated on periodically like 
not knowing how he'll react when death comes for him and not having expected to have lived that long and being so focused on his legacy. And it does this by spotlighting Hamilton and kind of casting everything else in sort of shadow. And there's sort of a black and white effect going on and there's no music at all. It's entirely acapella. And so it's this sense of like, he is suddenly alone in this moment trying to make sense of his life as he knows he's about to die. Like, I think it's a clever way to capture a weird mental phenomenon in a way that people can see and understand that that's what's happening. Yeah, I think that's done really well. And then you have sort of a contrast to that with Burr talking afterwards and narrating that he's got to go and hide in a bar and things and reflecting on what's going to happen in his life and reflecting on the fact that he's going to be the villain in your history books and things and sort of like the reverse of that side of thing Mm -hmm. where it's instead of everything that has happened it's what will happen and that leads us nicely into that final song where it is okay so what happens next Hamilton's gone with Washington's ghost turning up to reprise that let me tell you what I wish I'd known which is that whole history has its eyes on you theme and okay so what does history remember of you and what is the history that we don't know about Hamilton. I like that you bring up that after we get that moment of Hamilton reflecting on everything that happened right before his death, realizing all of that in one moment, that you then get the reverse for Burr of him suddenly seeing his future and how bleak that is going to be in a lot of ways because of what he has just done. And so it's this one action that he took that we're getting to see time in both directions but from those two perspectives and it's that that dawning realization of like oh shit what have i done and it's i think in some ways similar to that moment in hurricane of hamilton mentally preparing to write the reynolds pamphlet he knows it's going to ruin his life in a lot of ways he knows it's going to destroy his marriage and so he's like taking this moment to appreciate the horror that the future is going to hold because of a thing that he did and a mistake that he made. So I think that's very interesting in terms of relating them as foils of each other and being very similar men in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think one of the really telling moments that Burr has a oh shit, what have I done moment is that his first reaction after shooting Hamilton is to try to run to him Mm -hmm. and like, I should fix this. Um, but people keeping him away. Which makes sense, because from their perspective, he just shot him. Like, what was he going to try and do? Finish killing Hamilton, you know? But we know because we're in his perspective that that's not what that impulse is reflective of. That it's actually him regretting having shot Hamilton and wanting to help. I was supposed to miss. I'm a terrible shot. Right. So I think that covers most of the things that we wanted to talk about. I think that the big question that the musical asks us is... Is ego tied to legacy? I think that the play is making an argument that it is, because there's such an emphasis on who lives, who dies, who tells your story. The idea that it doesn't matter what you did so much as whether or not the knowledge of what you did survives, as far as legacy is concerned. Like, you won't have a legacy unless unless you have enough of an ego to have it set down or to propel your narrative enough that it's taken up by other people. Does that make sense? It does, but I disagree. Okay. I think that the musical comes down to your ego gets in the way of having a legacy Hmm. and that it's being selfless that gets you a legacy. One of the lines that Hamilton has in his, when he's about to be shot, Uh is what is a legacy but planting seeds in a garden you'll never get to see? Hmm. Which is... Your legacy isn't about what you get for you. It's Mm -hmm. about what you do for the future. 
one of the people that we see who has the strongest legacy in the play is Washington. And he's not driven by ego. He does what he thinks he needs to do. When Hamilton comes to him and says, hey, we need to go and deal with Lee because he's dragging your name through the mud. Washington's like, I don't care about my name. I care about the country and we need to fight and we can't alienate our friends in the South. And when he thinks, I think the best thing for the country is not for me to be here. He doesn't go, I am the best. I am. He's not full of ego there. He's saying, for the country, I need to step back. Also, I want a nap. But this is my understanding of American history. I'm sorry. I think you make a really good point there. I still think there is a role of ego, at least in some drives to create a legacy. I think it's more of like, if what you are going for is a legacy, there's ego behind that. But that doesn't mean it's the only way to have a legacy. And in a lot of ways, the most powerful and enduring legacies are the ones that you make by doing what you think is right, not because you want to attach your name to it. Well, I guess maybe ego gets you to a point where you could have a legacy, but securing it, you have to let go of the ego. And my support of this is that Howerton's ego gets him to a point where he writes the Reynolds pamphlet. And the result of that is that his legacy is literally burnt in some regard. Eliza takes his letters and is like, no, we're getting rid of this part of the narrative. When he sets aside politics and takes a step back and then re-enters it because people are saying, what should we do? We can't get this right policy. What is best for the country? He doesn't come out and go, man, I hate Jefferson. Poe's an okay dude. Like, he doesn't always make the right choice. But, you know, we've been friends a while. He goes, Jefferson might be a jackass, but at least he has opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, He'll take the country somewhere good. Or somewhere, at least. Which is, I think, him putting his ego aside. He doesn't want to partake in that conversation. But when he does, it's a selfless comment that he makes. And that means that he gets to be in a position where Eliza will work for that legacy after he's gone. I don't know that him weighing in on that debate is him setting his ego aside. It is still him. It's him weighing in on what he thinks is the most important. And what he thinks is most important is having a position and committing to it. And that's his biggest issue with Burr is that Burr won't publicly solidly commit to a particular position because he always wants the option of moving away from that to be on the table if it's more advantageous for something else. So I don't know that that's necessarily him setting his ego aside. It's it's him prioritizing what he thinks is one of the most important things. Right, but he set his ego aside to get to that point. And I don't think that that decision is informed by his ego. Okay. I don't think he's gotten to that position. I think he's always had that opinion. Like, from the very beginning when he's like, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? In the very beginning okay. of the very first act... So that's one of the, like, core beliefs he has, is that it's better to take a stance and be wrong than to never pick a side. Well, then maybe the better point of that ego being set aside is that he tries to not have a voice. That's true. I think that is a better indicator of him stepping away from that and deciding that he doesn't need to be the mover and shaker right now. That's not what he needs in his life, and it's not the most important thing at that point. There's an extent to which, though, I don't know that other people would campaign hard for you to have a legacy, if, or at least Eliza would campaign hard for him to have a legacy, if it hadn't been so clear, made so clear by him in his ego that that's something he wanted and something that was important to him. Hmm. 
But she also campaigns for the Washington Monument. She does. And Washington was never like, you know what I need? A, a big pillar. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair. I think part of it, we might be running up against different understandings of ideas of ego and legacy, and, and that might be part of it. You, I think you might be right. There are definitely people who you do not find out about in history, even though they've done remarkable and amazing things that people should know about, because they and the people who knew them didn't find it important to make sure people knew about the things that they'd done. And so that lack of ego has directly resulted in them not having a legacy for future generations to be inspired by, if that makes sense. The fact that we can find out about those people says that someone did make a legacy. What we run into there is a difference between a legacy and what is taught in history. And the decision of what to be taught in history is a very different conversation. That's true. And one of the issues that the play is trying to address is the fact that we don't know much about Hamilton. Another thing that I want to point out, though, is that the focus in our history on individuals and their contributions to things, like to major things that happen, is a way of erasing movements and the role of individuals contributing on smaller scales and en masse in having something happen. I mean, a big problem with the way that we're taught about, for example, the civil rights movement is the fact that we're only taught about a few key figures as people who basically, like, are the reason it happened and are the the people who, like, did the things, It which discourages people from continuing on that legacy of that movement and doing that work because people think to themselves, well, I'm no Martin Luther King, so what role do I have in this movement? We're not taught about the roles of all of the other people who made it possible and made it impactful in the way that it was. It doesn't matter how charismatic you are if you're only five people. You're not going to make the impact that was made. The impacts that were made by the revolutionaries in stirring up anti-British sentiment and getting the population on board with a revolution was not a handful of charismatic people. It was a lot more than that. And it's the same with the civil rights movement and a lot of other movements. There were a whole lot of contributors to those processes of change, and it discourages other people from doing things like that now when you only talk about the big figures. While you're right, and I think that what you're saying is important, if we're asking the question of the musical, mm -hmm. that's not the message the musical gives. Because the message it gives is that there are these four people who are going to grow into a larger number of people. And part of it is how charismatic Hamilton is, that he can get on a soapbox and get people riled up. Mm -hmm. It's the whole thing of the line of, tomorrow there'll, there'll be, be more, more of us. us. Mm -hmm. Which has become a rallying cry in certain protests. Mm -hmm. You can see it posted on some of the signs and things, and mm -hmm. it's right. And, but I mean, it is that there's a hundred or two hundred or a thousand people out in the street with that on a board, not that there's five people. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying, though, when your question about ego and legacy is that they're not necessarily tied together because the legacy isn't just the legacy of Hamilton or those handful of people. The legacy is of the group of people and the the revolution has a legacy. The legacy of the revolution is this country. Which I suppose that Eliza doesn't tell the story of Hamilton. She tells everyone's story. It's mm -hmm. the, she goes and interviews people and right. there's the thing of the figures behind her going she tells our story mm -hmm. so it's right. not about just hamilton and his ego it is the collective legacy of all of the people involved in making the big changes that he fought for and that he believed in so i don't think that they're necessarily tied together in as linear a way as that question presents it that's fair
What was my question? What is the relationship between ego and legacy? Mm. So you're saying that isn't real. I'm saying it's complicated. That for an individual, it can look like ego makes a legacy possible or it makes a legacy endure, but that there's more than one way to look at a legacy, including in ways that do not incorporate ego at all, that view a legacy as the result of many actors working together and many of whom whose names may never be known, but they can still have a legacy. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what you're saying is that an ego is what drives a person and a legacy is the result of a group. Yeah, I think so. I think, for the most part, I'm sure there are individuals who have a legacy, but I bet they didn't do it all by themselves. It's like Washington didn't win the war by himself. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. He might have a legacy of the the two-term precedent. I think that's a legacy you could attribute to Washington. But even that was only possible because it was built on by subsequent presidents. Yeah. Like, if Adams hadn't done it, it probably wouldn't have become the precedent that it became. Although I think he may have only served one term. I think he only served one term. Yeah. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, what is the best David Diggs moment in the play? Oof. He really is a breakout in this. Like, I mean, I know we really liked him in Blackish, and he's done a lot of other stuff, but like, he is amazing in this. I think I do want to go and watch Snowpiercer. Hmm. He's just so physically active throughout it, and I don't think I knew that the characters of Lafayette and Jefferson, Jefferson in particular, were so, like, physical across the stage during the performance. Like, a lot of those musical numbers, he is singing a lot, but he is also jumping around and climbing all over furniture and jumping up and down off of things, and it's really impressive. Well, he undoubtedly has the most words per minute. Oh, his rap segments are fast. And, like, the opening of Guns and Ships is insane. I'm not going to lie. I try and sing along with this in my car. I can't do that one. But then he not only does it, but apparently he does it while jumping up and down on a table and then jumping, like, down onto the stage while singing that. And I, I I don't understand. Some people are just superhuman, and we just have to accept that. And David Diggs is clearly one of them. It's the only explanation. It's like Aaron Burr's dance number for uh, Things Room Where It Happens. Mm, yeah. It's just like, my thighs. No, he has, a, he has a lot of really great moments, including like his dance number when he's introduced as Jefferson. Mm. He's just kind of glumping around the whole stage and like interacting with various people and doing a whole lot of clever things with the furniture and talking to the audience and things. And it's just very dynamic throughout the whole thing. I feel like Lafayette is fairly active, but is a little bit more reserved, whereas when it comes to Jefferson, he just lets everything out. Mm -hmm. And he has this weird, like, bobbing walk where he's almost limping, but not really. He's not so much limping as he is sort of bouncing a little bit. Like, he's bouncing on, like, the balls of his feet, like... Well, he sort of drags one leg so he can bring himself back up. Well, it's sort of jouncing, you know? Like, it's almost a skip and a bounce bobbing up and down constantly and it's interesting and it shows like excitement and that's what i get from it it's just like this barely contained energy particularly there's this the scene with the reynolds pamphlet where he's like swinging his legs on a table and like bouncing side to side and he looks like so gleeful that hamilton has ruined his own life and he'll never have to worry about hamilton making a bid for the presidency just chanting with his friends he's never going to be president now and it's just woo. And then making it rain with the Reynolds pamphlet. Yep. Yeah, I think it's also that so many of his movements are so unique. 
as well. It's a more subtle moment, but I think that a contender is his last scene when he's talking about Hamilton in uh, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. His financial system is genius. I couldn't dismantle it if I tried. Yeah, I couldn't dismantle it if I tried. And I've tried, and just, like, the look on his face then is just perfect. But I, I think it is that the scene that stands out most to me is him dancing around in the purple suit, making it rain with the Reynolds pamphlet. That's certainly not something I would have imagined with the uh, just the soundtrack, and I think it's a good addition. Yeah. Similar to the lack of movement of King George, like, the, like, constant dancing around of Jefferson. Yep. <laughs> it's just, like, it really adds a lot. Okay, we would normally do some fun facts here, but A, we don't really have any really good ones, and B, this is already a very long recording, so I think we're going to leave it there with that. We do have some late thoughts, but I think we're also going to leave those for our next episode. I think that we're okay saying for once that our next episode will be on Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson, the first book in the series. It will be part one of a work on at least the first trilogy of that series. But we won't be doing those three sequentially. It'll take a while for Mark to read books two and three, so don't expect us to do Mistborn for the next three episodes. It's not going to happen. We are going to leave it there for this week. You can find us on social media. The links are all in the show notes below. We're also currently setting up a YouTube channel. You can find links to that on our social media. You can email us with questions, suggestions, and comments at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you are able to rate or review on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially if that is Apple Podcasts, that is a great way to help other people find the show. Tell your friends about us. Um, I have been wrestling with Facebook's system and trying to work out a good way to do a poll on our Facebook page about some other things that we can do aside from the podcasts. So check out our Facebook page to see that. Thanks for listening to Unravelings. We hope you'll join us next time. You have, of course, asked the Brit to summarize American history.